Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, darlings all. Today is a very special day. We're not so much getting regional with words today as we are getting historical. I always have words with a celebrity guest, but today our guest is an historian who has written an entire book wrestling with the word celebrity and its history. If you're a fan of television's horrible histories or the wonderful podcast, You're Dead to Me, you may already know the name Greg Jenner. He's the history teacher everyone wishes they'd had and delights in the ability to still have. His latest book, Dead Famous, is the book that grapples with the definition of celebrity, but also the words that have orbited the phenomenon of celebrity culture. I can't wait to attend this most delicious tutorial with all of you. But before we make him sing for his supper, I should sing for him, or at the very least, rhyme. Here's Greg's bespoke poem. Recently, each evening, I have taken him to bed. Before you write me letters, I shall unpick what I've said. You see, I've been devouring the pages of his tome on wild and rogue celebrities while tucked in bed at home. In this, as on his podcast, he's a champion oscillator. Between the chum you'd meet for pints to artful educator, his language does the same as he'll from classic parlance swing to christening King Charles II, King of Royal Bling. I find him so alluring with his deft and dexterous tongue. I can't believe from pages to my podcast he has sprung. To be a human dictionary dissecting the great web of lexicon he's ushered forth concerning the celeb. From Shirley Temple through to a castrato countertenor, I cannot wait to pick the brains of wonderful Greg Jenner. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's I've never had a poem dedicated to me before. That's lovely. Oh, you've inspired my quill. <laughs> it's it's a very lovely quill. <laughs> you make this distinction, Greg, between celebrity and famous and star or the words. And celebrity is the baby of the three, isn't it? At uh, 170 years old. 
Yeah, linguistically it is. Yeah, absolutely. I argue in the book that celebrity culture is about 300 years old. So we have celebrities in the 18th century, but they weren't yet called celebrities. They were called famous people. They might have another word attached to them. But the word celebrity, meaning someone who is famous, doesn't really crop up until about the 1840s, around the time of Queen Victoria. Yes, yes. At which point, because you uh, talk about how one of the defining features of celebrity is being able to monetize your image. And this amazing thing under Victoria's reign happened, which was kind of a Victorian Instagram called Cartomania. <laughs> Please tell me about that. I, I love that. Yeah, so Cartomania was the, um, the huge new obsession that people had with collecting what were called carte de visite. And they were small photographs printed on cardboard, about six centimetres by nine centimetres in size. And they were photographs of celebrities and um, probably royalty initially, Queen Victoria posed and they, they sold very well. Um, but it's not just celebs, it's criminals, it's bishops, it's, <laughs> it's kind of all the great and Lawrence good, but also... Florence Nightingale had to be convinced to pose. She really didn't want to pose. She hated it all. So Who convinced her, Greg? Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria oh. was like, come on, you've got, to, you've got to pose. The people want it. They need it. So, um, <laughs> so she was a collector too, I guess. She was. Victoria was obsessed with photography. Her, her husband was uh, an avid photographer. And, um, and she collected. She had collections of all these photographs of famous people around the kingdom. Uh, or queendom rather <laughs> and she um she convinced florence to pose florence hated anything to do with celebrity she became very very famous but she really didn't enjoy what she called the fuzz buzz uh, which is charming isn't it so um she hated the fuzz buzz so uh, victoria was like come on you've got to do it pose for the pose for the people so Florence was like, oh, you can't say no to her, can you? You can't really, can you? <laughs> it, it takes some real gumption to say, no, you know what? I'm, I'm going to defy the Queen. Yeah. Um, so yes, Cartomania was this obsession that lasted about 25, 30 years. Um, and it was um, particularly, particularly women preferred to collect these things. Men did too, but it was, it was said of the time that women were the more sort of avid collectors and that um, the thing about Cartomania is that women would often sort of be going up to random strangers and going, have you got this person? Have you got this person? Yeah. You know, so almost like collecting uh, football stickers or Pokemon or anything else. And then suddenly people got recognised from it, didn't they? Like Harriet Beecher Stowe, yep. who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that in the 18th century, we have portraiture in terms of beautiful paintings. We've got gorgeous imagery in terms of what people look like, that they were painted and they were engraved and they were cartoons. But photography gives you accuracy, gives you fidelity so that you can see the actual face of someone, which is a revolution. I liked it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer her kind of porn days when she was sort of beautifully painted in the bath. Well, you know, she, she was very pretty when she was young, but she, you know, as she got older, she perhaps was less of a babe, but you know, I'm not <laughs> going to judge people on their looks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Her husband was a good looking fella. You know, he was, he wasn't was quite, he? Yes. He was quite, you know, dashing in his youth. Um, uh, another person so, yeah. whose image was replicated in a different way was uh, Benjamin Franklin when he was yeah. minister to France and he was literally idolized tell me about yeah. that yeah so we have this letter that he writes to his daughter i think it is uh saying 
um, he basically discovered, he was in his 80s at this point, he was a very, he was an elderly man, he was quite sort of rotund, he'd been losing his hair, um, <laughs> not your classic beauty, but he became a heartthrob in France, and oh. people were putting his face on snuff boxes and cameo rings and all sorts of souvenirs that you could buy, and he found himself idolised, and that's the word he used, and he said in the letter, I'm treated like a doll. So idolized, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm a thing that people play with and I can't go anywhere in the kingdom, in, in well, not the kingdom of course at this point, but I can't go anywhere in France without people recognizing me. So I'd better not do anything wrong because I wouldn't be able to get away with it. This is his line, which is quite fun really. So clearly... doll, the word doll is a contraction of idol. He thought so. I, um, right. It's interesting. I have not looked into the etymology, but he believes so, yeah. My favourite word, now we're getting on to stardom, because my favourite word in the entire book is Chaucer's word for becoming a star. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. It's my favourite word in the book too. Is I'm so it? glad you chose it. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's such a lovely oh, word. Lovely. So, you know, we have, we have Gaga in her Star is Born movie, and how is a star yeah. born? Well, they have to be thrust into the heavens and yes the word yes. is stellified so you are stellified oh you are turned into a star a physical star oh. in the sky i have something to tell you about that because if i have a really great date afterwards i say i'm interstellar and it doesn't i don't mean that i've uh, changed teams and i'm well interstellar i'm <laughs> just <laughs> hanging there in a hammock between the stars well, that's lovely. So you've been stellified. You've been thrust into the uh, the skies. Yeah, I have. I've been stellified. I'm going to modify that now and use that one instead. <laughs> one of one of the wrestles, the kind of tugs of war between press and what's hidden that you talk about in the book is um, the wonderful French ballerina, Cléo de Merode, because she very cleverly concealed something, didn't she? She did. She was very beautiful. Um, uh, there's a photo I've, I've posted on my Twitter, which is my pinned tweet. You can see her. She's gorgeous. Um, and she wore her hair down, very sort of, very Renaissance kind of hair, long, curly, very sort of fanned out over the shoulders. She wore it down. She was a ballet dancer. People became obsessed with her ears because they couldn't see them. And bizarrely, they got more and more obsessed about what her ears might be like, you know, and they're starting to do drawings. They're starting to do poetry and songs about Claire de Moreau's ears. And by the time she went to tour America, that's all people could talk about. And there are several newspapers, American newspapers, where journalists were desperately trying to get a glimpse of her ears. And eventually she pulled back her hair and, and showed her ear and it was normal. And everyone went, oh, that was a bit boring. Oh, no. Because, <laughs> you know, there was also, I mean, I don't know how, uh, how rude I can go here, Tom, but like... Um, oh, go rude. Well, some people thought her ears might look like vaginas. So there were people doing drawings and paintings of her ears as sort of female anatomy. And so there was this kind of yeah. sexualized erotic potential to what her ears might reveal about her. She was this beautiful woman. She had posed nude for a very famous statue. And so people were desperate to know the one thing that they hadn't seen. They'd seen her body, they'd seen her hair, yeah. seen her dance. The only thing they hadn't seen was her ears. It's a bit like Banksy, isn't it, almost? It's mm. like, if he suddenly was on every talk show in town, I think the interest would diminish, wouldn't it? That's true. Yeah, if he was just a sort of middle-aged bloke, like, hello, you'd be like, oh, that's, ah. oh. And I suppose yeah. it's true of genitalia too. You know, it's the one thing that you never mm -hmm. see on it. And so it's true. all true. one can do is imagine it and, and delight in imagining it. And there have been plenty of celebrities in, in the past who have 
hidden things on purpose, knowing full well that if you hide something, it becomes attractive. So you have, for example, R Veronica Lake, the you know, gorgeous actress, yes. very, very famous, played often kind of these icy blondes who you know, may or may not have murdered their husbands. Um, she used to veil one of her eyes with her hair. And, um, yes. and she was, you know, her hair had various nicknames, but you know, the peekaboo bang was the kind of, um, which is, you know, lovely, isn't it? It's the idea of this kind of, the bang is in a, um, is in a fringe rather than. Yes, the American more, fringe. The American that, fringe. Yeah. And, um, but the peekaboo, the idea of the peekaboo. And that was an accident. She'd accidentally, she'd been filming a scene in one of her early films and she'd been playing a drunkard person, someone who'd had a few too many. And she <laughs> slipped while pretending to be drunk and her hair came down over her eye. And the director went, oh my God, don't move that's an amazing image. And so she changed her name from Constance Ockelman. I think Veronica Lake was a made up name. Um, I but can't she... think why she changed that. <laughs> Constance Ockelman, it's a, it's a name that just trips off the tongue. Um, <laughs> she, was, she was this incredibly beautiful, very talented actress, but the hair turned her into a mystery. You know, by hiding one of her eyes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It turned her into a femme fatale, a woman who you couldn't trust because you couldn't see both of her eyes. And so there was something she was keeping from you. So it's a really interesting tactic. It's a gimmick. Yeah. And, and yes, another sensational gimmick. And, and I must talk about that word because uh, a lot of etymologists think that it's a kind of approximate anagram of magic. And mm. your book is just filled with gimmicks. And it's a, the word I think you use most in the book. And I love that word anyway. And as Sondheim said, you gotta have a gimmick, it's essential. And you talk <laughs> about everything from uh, fright wigs to celebrity rhinos. So could you, before we get onto my machine gun body of translation, could you tell me your three favorite gimmicks, Greg? Well, I mean, there are so many in the book, I think, um, 
I have to mention Anna Held, who was the queen of late 19th century um, stunts. So she would do just fake yes. stunts and put them in, in the papers. So her gimmick was always, always be in the paper with a new outlandish thing you have supposedly done. So uh, that was Ziegfeld's wife. That's right? right. That's it. Florence Ziegfeld's wife, Anna Held. She was a French Polish um, singer. She had very big eyes. So that was her first gimmick was her eyes. She, she sung about her eyes and how flirtatious they were. But then she started to dress very provocatively and she had incredibly tiny waist um, from a corset and massive hats. So she really kind of accessorized in that way. But then she also had this gimmick of always just putting these fake stories in the, in the papers and bribing people and, and getting them in. But it backfired on her. Again, the Kim Kardashian thing is there because she earned so much money that she was able to buy millions of dollars worth of jewels in modern money, but they were stolen from her, from her private luxury train. And nobody believed her because she'd spent so long lying to the press about all these other things she'd supposedly got up to. But when she was a victim of crime, people didn't, didn't, they didn't trust her. And they did songs and poems about, you know, all the kind of lies she told. And they were like, oh, this is another fib, isn't it? You're the the celebrity who cried wolf. So her gimmick backfired on her. There's Sarah Siddons, who was a great actress in, in England in the 18th century, in the late 1770s or so. And her gimmick was she acted on stage with her own child. So she played mother roles always, Gosh. and she often played, she often acted pregnant, but she acted on stage with her own son, and it caused the audience to go into just hysterical crying. People and fainted. People, they had to Judy be... Garland started that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes Little back. It goes know. back. It goes all the way back. <laughs> 18th century. Um, and as he said, the fright wig, that's David Garrick. He had a, he had a very specific wig that he wore called the, the Garrick Cut but he had a fright wig where he could pull a little string and his hair would suddenly shoot up on end as if he was going to be, if he was scared in a scene. So if he saw a ghost in Macbeth or whatever, his hair would go shoop and shoot up. <laughs> it was an amazing sort of prop to have. Um, but there are lots and lots. I mean, there are 125 celebrities in the book and most of them had a thing that they did. Well, yes. And I have to say that if you like the sound of these stories, this is the tip of the iceberg. I've never been so entertained. I, I got through Thank it you. so quickly. I loved it. Um, but since it is the tip of the iceberg and there are so many more words, I do want to hit you with a kind of a mm-hmm. fusillade of a few words and see if you can play translator for sure. me. Would that be all right? Absolutely. Okay, first up, a lion. A lion was a, a type of 19th century highbrow intellectual celebrity. So someone like Tennyson or Charles Dickens. They were celebrities, but their fans tended to be posh women who had very fancy houses. And mainly literary, were they then? Primarily intellectual. So literary, artistic, um, philosophers. So people of sort of high culture. Clara Bow's It. So Clara Bow was a, a silent movie actress. She was the sort of a great star. Um, and... The film, it was about a girl who has a sort of, she's just got the X factor. She's just got this wow factor and she doesn't know she's got it. So to have it is to be cool, beautiful, charming, funny, bubbly, cute, but to not know it. It's almost like a je ne sais quoi. Absolutely. And X Factor was also coined from the movie industry at the same time as well. It's, oh it, that was their attempt to try and define what charisma is. They couldn't work out what charisma was. People were queuing obsessively to see these movie stars and so someone a film journalist said i think it's the x factor yeah well because at the same kind of time the x-ray um mm-hmm. that was x radiation wasn't it anything that didn't have a category was x or was indefinable 
that's it. It's I mean, it's, yeah, it's the X rays comes from uh, William Röntgen, the, the Dutch scientist, and um, and X marks the spot is because we don't know what something is. X is yes. the algebraic equation for an unknown mystery. So the X factor is something where you you know by definition it is a paradox. It's you have X, but also X is an absence of something. So it's a yes. very interesting word. Yes. Umfish. Uh, Umfish is uh, also uh, roughly the same time in the 1930s and 40s. Marilyn Monroe was voted the most umfish girl at high school when she oh. was young. To be umfish was to have pizzazz and wow, particularly as a as a female performer. Oh, I can see that. Have you seen all about Eve, Greg? I have. Yes. Oh, you know her little cameo in that. I think that is the litmus test for stardom. If you're sharing the screen with Betty Davis and all you can watch <laughs> is Marilyn Monroe doing nothing, that's a well, pretty yeah, good metric. Yes. And, and Betty Davis was obviously uh, quite the jealous person when it came to sharing the screen. So, well, uh, quite, yes. Chaos, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you've explained, and Fuzzbuzz, you've explained. Oh, what about yeah. this one? The human fridge. <laughs> well, this is my own particular line, but this is related to Shirley. This is a generalism, I'm so sorry, but uh, it's Shirley Temple. She was a child performer in the 1930s. She was four years old when she became famous. She was incredibly talented, had a very, very high IQ. She was a brilliant tap dancer and performer, and she became a star at four, but she'd already been working for two years. And the films she'd been making before were called Baby Burlesques, and they were basically children, toddlers, dressed up to look like adults, and they would do satirical sketches about the news. And the producers were so cruel that to get the children to behave, they would put them in a frozen um, sort of shed, lock the door, and they would be made to sit on an ice block, on a large block of ice. Oh, and God. so these two-year-olds would be sat on the ice block until they learned their lines and behave themselves. Oh, so the great. human fridge was a way of getting tiny movie stars to behave. It's like a precursor to the choking. Yeah, it's really horrible. It's oh, really, really terrible. Yeah. Um, puffery. Uh, puffery is an 18th century word and it's to do with essentially puffing your own fame so that is to say planting stories in the media like Anna Held did getting your friends to write reviews of your book or of your play or of your new song uh, finding ways to cheat basically to create the sense that other people are talking about you so it's a bit like having a sock puppet account now on twitter or instagram you know you create your own separate account and then go oh i love greg jenner he's so handsome <laughs> oh that's just i haven't done that learning. that's just mine <laughs> and speaking of shirley temple we share her curls don't we you're yes uh, you are you're as curly as i am which is you know it's rare actually i don't meet many curly gents these days <laughs> so puffery is almost onomatopoeic because it's it's sort of about inflating your fame. Absolutely so. It's about puffing yourself up, bigger than you really are. <laughs> Monikers. A moniker is a nickname or a stage name. So it, it simply means um, a word, a name that stands in for your real name. So a moniker, so Constance Ockelman became Veronica Lake. That was her moniker. Oh, very nice. And the kind of word that we love on this show, the portmanteau, Mm. A celebutant. Yes. So a celebutant, we've already talked about Brenda Fraser, that um that wealthy heiress from the 1930s whose whose life sadly was was ruined by being famous. She was yes. called a celebutant, which is a portmanteau of celebrity and debutante. Debutante being uh, that was at the time until the 1950s, certainly, um wealthy heiresses and heirs to you know rich families would go to a big ball 
and it would be held in a, a very prestigious hotel and it would be your coming out into society. So you would be, you know, you're now yes. on the marriage market, you're now an adult, you'd be a debutante. So a celebutante was a wealthy celebrity who was rich and famous, um, but they didn't necessarily have a skill. So I suppose Paris Hilton would be the modern equivalent of a celebutante because she doesn't necessarily have lots and lots of skills, but she is well known because of who her father was and she has turned that into a career. So it's a sort of uh, an idea that's about 90 years old. Yes, and coming out meant mm. something very different in the 20s. It really did. It really did. And of course, there would have been people who had their coming out parties and may well have also, you know, been queer, been gay, been, been lesbian, bi, trans, we don't know. But yeah. um, coming out at the time was not something one did, but you certainly would come out as a debutante or as an, an heir. So yes, it's a word that's changed its meaning. Yes. Well, You've explored so many evolutions of words and given me so much lexicon to play with. And I have absolutely loved it. And I'd say I'd like to thank my celebrity guest, but by your very thorough definitions, I don't think you'd call yourself one, but you are certainly renowned, Greg. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I, I'll, I'll take renowned all day long, but celebrity, <laughs> no, no, thank no, you. Not no, for me. No, no. And I'm so fond of you and your work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to chat. Oh, I loved it. Greg just talked about monikers. A literary moniker has a special name all its own. Nom de plume. Nom de plume is French for name of the feather or quill. In other words, a pen name. For many women, it was essential for publishing contracts, which is why Marianne Evans became George Eliot. Gosh, what an exciting episode from Cleo hiding her ears to Shirley Temple being shut in that fridge. If you enjoyed this episode, remember, it's but one of Shirley's curls in the icebox. For more, do subscribe, rate us, and leave more of your lovely reviews. In the meantime, oodles of love. This has been a Monkey Kingdom and Acast production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.